0: Good morning, and can I just add to that, um, in this Easter season, join us on Friday for Good Friday services, we're hosting here, so it's right on the front of this, you can get the details, we'll be here and we hope you will be too. Well, good morning, I'm Daisy Richardson and I'm the community advocate at Hillcrest, which means I get to connect us to the needs in the community as we seek the good of our city. I have a husband, Kevin, and two little boys, Josiah and Micah, and I've been part of the team here at Hillcrest for 16 years next month. And in that time, I have convinced my husband, my parents, both my siblings and their families to all move to Moose Jaw. So needless to say, I like Moose Jaw a lot. All right, the past three weeks, we've been examining the evidence for and the significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus in a series that we called The Case for Easter. And some of you have also been reading along in a little booklet by Lee Strobel by the same title. In week one, Pastor Steve talked about, did Jesus actually claim to be God and gave us the top 10 ways that we find out that Jesus is God. It was a great list with lots of scripture. If you didn't catch it, get it on the podcast. Or if you got the pastor's heart email, it's there's great notes this week from it in there. On week two, Doug sigelco a.k.a. Dad, to me, did uh, the question, did Jesus really die? Because that's a significant part. He looked at the crucifixion and the torture Jesus endured and the utter humiliation. This death for the lowest of the low and concluded that Roman crucifixion absolutely resulted in death. There were no survivors. Yes, Jesus really did die. And last week, Pastor Chris asked the question, was Jesus' body really absent from the tomb? Was there an empty tomb? He asserted that Jesus' death and resurrection is not merely a religious claim, but an actual historical event. So I'd encourage you, if you've missed any of those weeks, you've been away or went, or working, go online, listen to the podcast, start from the beginning. You can go to hillcrestmj.com is our website, or you can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And each one of these covered their areas really well, and I'm not going to double back into what they visited and revisit those parts. We're going to move forward. But first, I have a little note here. Because I know every time that when we announce an apologetic series like The Case for Easter or The Case for Christmas that we did at Christmas, those who approach life analytically, the thinkers, are pumped. Yeah, give me the stats, give me the details, give me the research, I'm ready. And those of us who process life first with our hearts, the feelers, we just double down. I will track with them. I will track with them. I will make it to the end. And it has nothing to do with intelligence or education. We are just wired differently in how we approach life. So I'm hoping that both the thinkers and the feelers will be able to engage and be encouraged today. As this is our final week before Easter, Palm Sunday, in fact. And so far, we've heard this overwhelming evidence that brings both us and followers of Jesus for centuries to believe that, yes, Jesus really did die, and yes, the tomb really was found empty. Yes, Jesus really is God. So today we're going to look at the question, did credible people encounter Jesus alive after his death on the cross? For as Lee Strobel writes, by itself an empty grave does not a resurrection make. And by the way, I'll use that word a lot, resurrection. It just means he didn't stay dead. So who were the eyewitnesses? Last week, Pastor Chris tackled the whole question of credibility of the eyewitnesses of the empty tomb and the reasons why the testimony of those who saw the tomb empty could not have been fabricated. So I'm not going to go back there. Listen to him. He'll explain it. I'll just leave you with two statements from theologians on the subject. The first one comes from Gary Habermas. He says this the resurrection was undoubtedly the central proclamation of the early church from the very beginning. The earliest Christians didn't just endorse Jesus' teachings. They were convinced that they had seen him alive after his crucifixion. That's what changed their lives and started the church. Certainly, since this was the centermost conviction, they would have made absolutely sure that it was true. He also points out that many of them later died defending this truth. And if it wasn't authenticated, surely someone along the way would have believed it wasn't worth dying for. Another British theologian, Michael Green, adds this. The appearances of Jesus are as well authenticated as anything in antiquity. There can be no rational doubt that they occurred and that the main reason why Christians became sure of the resurrection in the earliest days was just this. They could say with assurance, We have seen the Lord. They knew it was He. And bear in mind that the eyewitness accounts, as are recorded in the Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, these were recorded within the lifetimes of those who had actually witnessed the events. So, If they had been misrepresented, people were still living who were there and would have corrected it, either because they were for Jesus or because they were against him. Nobody wanted the wrong news to make the news. So the primary eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection in the New Testament come in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20 and 21, and also in 1 Corinthians 15. And this is Paul who's quoting and we're actually going to start with Paul, because in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is quoting a creed that was part of, it's an early church creed that actually predates all the writings, the dates when when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote their accounts. So let's start with what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, and this would have been something that was commonly recognized amongst early believers, and that was used um, as a creed among them. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, Paul, also as one abnormally born. So even before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote their accounts, early believers were already invested, they already knew in their hearts. Yes, Jesus really was alive. Now let's look at the, some of the passages just very briefly. Um, there's quite a long list of appearances in the Gospels. There were multiple appearances to numerous people. Several of them are confirmed. There's crossover in several of the Gospels. They tell the same stories. They don't all repeat the same stories, but some of them do. And um, many of them are confirmed either by another account or, or by the creed in 1 Corinthians He appeared to Mary Magdalene, we're going to talk more about her, to other women who followed Jesus, to Cleopas and another disciple on the road to Emmaus, to the disciples in various configurations, in various locations, at least four appearances, so there was all the disciples except Thomas, and there was the disciples with Thomas, and then there was a few more disciples fishing on the beach, we'll talk more about that, and then the apostles on the Mount of Olives before Jesus goes back into heaven. And then as we continue into the book of Acts, it's just littered with references to Jesus' appearances. Now, we've been in the book of John quite a bit in 2019, and I have loved it with the Hearing God series, and some of our life groups are going through the book of John as well. And so for simplicity today, we're just going to focus on John. We're just going to go to John 20 and 21 and talk about three stories of lives that were transformed because they followed Jesus before he died and encountered him after he came back to life. So we're going to jump in with John 20. But before we do that, I'll give you a little bit of the backstory. So Jesus had been traveling. He had taught. He had performed miracles for three years in and around um, Jerusalem and in Israel. The religious leaders more and more hated and hated him and his message. And they hated most of all that people were following him and that people loved him. And soon they were plotting to kill him. Jesus was arrested, taken to trial, whipped and beaten, and finally crucified, although the authorities admitted they could find nothing wrong with him. They just were um, giving in to the pressure of the the Jewish leaders. His body was quickly taken down off the cross on Friday before sunset because they wanted to accommodate the Jewish Sabbath, which was going to start at sundown and go till sundown on the Saturday. So quickly taken down, whisked off, and put in a tomb. And then a day of darkness followed for his friends and followers, many of whom stayed hidden in fear of also being arrested. That's the Reader's Digest notes of where we are when John 20 opens. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's the one that Jesus loved, that's John, the writer, that's how he refers to himself, and says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as a cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, he saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Wait a minute, who was this woman, Mary Magdalene? She started out this piece and then we get distracted here by Peter and John. Let's talk about Mary Magdalene for a minute. What do we know from Scripture about Mary Magdalene? Well, we know she was a Jewish follower of Jesus. She's mentioned 12 times in, in the Gospels, which is actually more than most disciples get mentioned, in the, if you're not Peter, James, and John, and Judas. So if you're not one of those guys, Mary got mentioned more than you. But Mary, you have to understand, was by far the most common Jewish name for girls during the first century. So it was everybody had a Mary, It was necessary for the authors of the Gospels to call her Mary Magdalene in order to distinguish her from the other women named Mary who followed Jesus. We have the same problem in our office with Laura's. It's like, Laura and all the other Lauras came to see me. And then all the Lauras together, in my house, this is how we keep them apart. We have Pastor Laura, because she's the children's pastor. We have Mrs. Laura and Duncan, which is said all in one breath for Laura Blackman. And then we have Miss Laura for Laura Fair, even though she's a missus. But when my kids met her, she was still Miss. So that's how we distinguish all the Lauras. They had a system, too, for distinguishing all the Marys, because there were so many of them. So Mary Magdalene, she's called Magdalene because she comes from this town called Magdala, so it was just a place name. it wasn't her surname, it's just them distinguishing her. And it's a little fishing town on the Sea of Galilee. Both Mark and Luke tell us, they don't tell us the account of how it happened, but they both just mention off the cuff, "Oh yes, and Jesus cast seven demons out of her. So we know her life was radically transformed and an encounter with Jesus. And from that moment on, she was a devoted follower of Christ. And Mary and other women as well traveled with Jesus and the disciples. And it's actually, there's a statement in Luke that says, Mary Magdalene and the other women were supporting them out of their own means. Did you ever wonder who fed them and who got places for them to stay? Well, apparently some of these women were actually paying out of their own pocket, so there's speculation as to whether Mary Magdalene was wealthy, maybe she was just a really hard worker, we don't know, but it was, it's evident that these women were vital to Jesus' ministry as they traveled around, and then they also say that because Mary Magdalene, whenever there's lists of all the women, Mary Magdalene's name comes first in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that this is an indication that she was significant um, as a leader, perhaps among the women, a leader like Peter was among the men. We know that Mary Magdalene stood at the cross when Jesus was crucified. It's documented. She witnessed his burial as well. And you may think, well, it's kind of strange, isn't it? There's this group of women huddled at the foot of the cross. Where are all the men? Well, one of the reasons why they probably were still at the cross is because the women would have been less likely to have been arrested. However, they may just have been braver than the men. The jury's still out on that one, we won't know. But we do know that she was there, and she had seen these things. Here's some things we don't know that you may have heard about Mary Magdalene, but we don't actually know these things. Scripture doesn't tell us. She may have been a prostitute before Jesus delivered her, and she may have even perhaps been the woman who came and washed his feet with her tears and a perfume, but once again, that woman is not named. It's just speculation. Some would also think that she's actually Mary. This is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' sister, But we're not told that. So you can imagine what you want. I just keep them all separate in my mind and imagine that they're different people. But we don't know, other than that she was Mary Magdalene, which one of those she may have been. So it's this Mary who runs to find Peter and John when she discovers the tomb is empty and fears that a horrible situation that has been unfolding throughout the weekend has gotten even worse. Imagine with me. Imagine Mary's confusion she herself saw them take Jesus' body down from the cross and place it in this tomb. Imagine her sense of loss, the grief she felt. Her entire world once had been turned right side up by Jesus, and now she owed him everything, but it came crashing down. All her hopes, all her dreams, all the the recognition of who this man had been. And now... Here she is, on the top of all the trauma and horror of having actually witnessed someone she loves died a torturous death before her very own eyes. Now his body was missing too, the final disgrace. Couldn't they even let him have a final resting place? Imagine her heartache. Let's jump to verse 11 in John. So now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. She's by herself now, Peter and John have gone. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they ask her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she says, and I don't know where they put him. She's desperate. At this, she turns around. And saw Jesus standing there. But she didn't realize it was Jesus. Did you ever wonder why she didn't realize it was Jesus? I always thought, what? Is her eyes just all blurry because she's been crying so much? Maybe. As, as I'm reading it more, I think, here she is. She's inside a dark tomb. There's not light in there. Unless the angels are glowing. We don't know that. But there's not light in this tomb. And she turns to the opening and hears sunlight streaming in. And the outline of a figure at the door. As her eyes are adjusting to the light. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary, you know the way that someone who loves you speaks your name, you know how that's different than just to anybody who's calling your name at the doctor's office because it's your turn? It's different. I can still remember all my grandparents are in heaven, but I can still hear in my mind how both my grandfathers would greet me. And I knew I was loved. It was that kind of a Mary. She turned toward him and cried in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And I can see her just about to fling herself at him. Jesus says, don't hold on to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them. I'm ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And Mary Magdalene goes to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord, she says. And she told them the things he had said to her. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I know many of you are using with your children, it says this. Mary ran and ran all the way to the city. She had never run so fast or so far in all her life. She felt she could have run forever. She didn't even feel like her feet touched the ground. The sun seemed to be dancing and gleaming and bounding across the sky, racing with her and shining brighter than she could ever remember in the clean, fresh air. And it seemed to her that morning as she ran, almost as if the whole world had been made anew, almost as if the whole world was singing for joy. The trees, tiny sounds in the grass, the birds, her heart. I imagine for Mary, it's like the very first time you ever have watched a 3D movie. Do you remember the first time you ever went to one? We took our kids once, and the youngest one, he was too little to care about glasses. He wouldn't keep them on his face. But he still watched the movie. So every once in a while I was going like this to see what is he seeing in this movie. And when I looked like this at what he was seeing, well, it's not it's kind of blurry, but it's it's more like lines, choppy lines of colors. You can still make out what's happening. You can see the figures and follow the story, but it's not very clear. I imagine that's what Mary came to the tomb like that morning. Everything was chaotic. Nothing was fitting together. And in that moment, Jesus speaks her name, Mary. And boom, the glasses go on, and life leaps out at her. It's dancing before her so close she can almost touch it. Everything bursts into full color and full force. The power of the risen savior she heard her voice and it was like no other it had given life back to her he spoke her name and life was just exploding jesus was alive mary doesn't really get the reception that she probably hopes for when she goes and tells the disciples after all peter and john had been them themselves and they didn't see him And we know from some of the other speakers that women's testimony was just not highly regarded as being true. So they probably thought she was a little bit emotional that day, and she just imagined things. But here's what comes next. Verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, verse 24, also known as Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. It was the same message as Mary. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So who was this Thomas? What was his relationship with Jesus? Well, he was actually one of the original 12 who traveled with Jesus. He was also called Didymus, as they said, which was just the Greek equivalent of his Hebrew name. And in the list of disciples, he's always mentioned Matthew, who is the son of Alphaeus, and then um, it mentions him, and then it mentions James, who is also the son of Alphaeus. So many have said it's likely that actually Matthew, Thomas, and James were all brothers because of the way that they've grouped them in um, in that text. We don't know a whole lot about Thomas. We know a few things. He has a bad reputation because of this passage, <laughs> doubting Thomas like he's a wimp or something. But you know, one of the only other passages that we know about him, he's not a wimp at all. There's this other story where Jesus has been called because his friend Lazarus is about to die and they want him to come, and, but he's in Bethany and things are really riled up in Bethany and Jesus knows if he appears, he will be killed before the time is right. And so he waits and he waits. And finally, after three days, Jesus says, Okay, let's go. And Thomas says this. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples in John 11, Let us also go that we can die with him. And he's like, Okay, he's made up his mind and they're going to kill him. We should go too, and they can kill us too. That's not very wimpy, is it? So maybe Thomas wasn't a wimp and maybe he wasn't a doubter. He had doubts. What if he was really guarding his heart? Have you ever had bad news? Life-changing bad news? Like turn your life upside down bad news? And then somebody comes with an unexpected turn of events. Maybe maybe it's a medical diagnosis. And then the later the news is, it's all clear. Everything in you wants to be excited and believe. But you've seen the evidence that says it was not all clear. Now you're just saying, before I breathe and let my heart sink into peace, just show me the evidence that it really is true and clear because my heart can't go through that again if it's not that's how I imagine Thomas his heart can't go through that again if it's not true he just wants to know that it's true verse 26 a week later so Thomas for a week is wondering the disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus is just saying, it isn't too good to be true. It really is true, Thomas. You can breathe now. Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus tells him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And John goes on to write in verses uh, 30 and 31, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these ones are written that you may believe. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Afterwards, John 21, Jesus appeared again to His disciples by the Sea of Galilee. They decided to go fishing, they're in the boat. Things are not going well. They look out and see this man on the shore. And once again, I don't know if they all just needed glasses then or what, but they don't realize it's Jesus. He says, Have you got any fish? They say, No. He says, Try your nets on the other side. You probably heard this story as a child in Sunday school if you were there. They end up hauling in all this fish. They throw the net. And at that moment, the light bulb goes on for those in the boat. And John says to Peter, It's the Lord! Simon Peter quickly grabs his garment, jumps out of the boat, goes in the water to the beach. He wants to see Jesus. And Jesus invites him. He's there in verse 10. He says, Bring some of the fish you've caught. Come here. He's already got a fire going. Breakfast. Come and have breakfast. They're all there in awe and wonder. Here he is again, almost afraid to speak. And this was the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, what was going on with Peter? Let's talk about that for a minute, because this is really significant. We know more about Peter than about Mary Magdalene or about Thomas, both during this time, while he knew Jesus, and after from the book of Acts. We know more about his life. Peter and his brother Andrew were business partners with James and John. All four of these men had originally been disciples of John the Baptist, So they knew someone was coming. That was John's message. Then Jesus had called them and said, come follow me. And they had left John the Baptist, recognizing, at some degree, that Jesus was the one they needed to follow. Peter's name originally was Simon. So sometimes you hear him Simon or Simon Peter. And Jesus changed his name to Cephas or Peter, which means a rock. But John often calls him by both names. So Peter, he was this fisherman, he was one of the first chosen, he was outspoken, he traveled with Jesus for three years, he walked on the water with Jesus, he saw all these miracles, he in fact declared at one point, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God to Jesus' face, and he declares his allegiance to Jesus to the very end, much to his sinking heart, Jesus said, oh Peter... By the way, before the rooster crows, right before Jesus was arrested, he says, you're actually going to deny me three times. No, never, Lord, never. I would die first. And then it happens. They're in the garden. They come to arrest Jesus. Peter's determined to fight to the end. He takes out his sword and he whips it at the first person he can reach and slices off a servant's ear. And in that moment, knowing he is about to die, Jesus turns and tells Peter, that's not the way we're going to do this. And he goes and he touches the man's ear and he heals him before he's taken off. Peter and the other disciples follow. They want to know what happens, but they don't want to be too close because they don't want to be included and caught. Peter sneaks his way into the inner court and he's watching. He's huddled by the fire. Three times, somebody comes and says, oh, you're one of them, aren't you? No. Oh, you're one of Jesus' followers? No, he swears I never even knew the man. The third time, he hears that rooster crow and turns and Jesus looks and he sees Peter and he makes eye contact with him and Peter's heart sinks and he runs from that place in shame. That's all what's happened. That was the last real encounter he'd had face to face with Jesus. And now... Jesus is coming, he was waiting, this confusing news from Mary, the tomb's empty, what was happening, and then Jesus starts showing up, and Peter's kind of on the fringes lurking, and most of us think of Peter's shame in a very individualistic Western cultural perspective, because that's what we are, right? Oh, how awful for Peter. He did something terrible, and his own actions brought this on him, and he must feel terrible. Which is probably true, but in the first century culture of the Middle East, it was very different. This was not an individualistic culture. This was a culture of honor and shame in the context of an entire community. A culture oriented towards approval and disapproval of others, where people strove to embody qualities that were and perform behaviors that were honorable, seen as honorable within the group, and avoid acts of dishonor. And your place in the group depends on it. So Christ's death itself the crucifixion was very dishonorable. Doug talked about that. Not just to him but to his family and to those who followed him being beaten and mutilated and killed brought shame. Think about that about Jesus death. Even though his followers knew he had done no wrong. By association the culture around them was shaming that they were shamed. And in this context, dishonoring a brother or sister is in fact dishonoring to yourself. So what Peter did by denying allegiance to Jesus brought shame not just to himself, but to the entire group of followers. Peter had been a leader, and now his position in the group had changed. You can understand why Judas went out and killed himself after the weight of what he'd done hit him. It's like when you catch your child disobeying and they can't make eye contact with you. They kind of want to be close to you because they're crying because they got caught. But they don't really want to look at you like this. That's kind of where Peter's at this point. His heart is dying to be close to Jesus. He leaps from that boat to get to the shore. But he knows inside it can never be the same again because of what he'd done. John 21, 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Oh, he's calling him by his given name, not by the name Jesus gave him. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And I imagine that was the moment when he looked up and saw Jesus in the eye. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you that when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and leave you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death that Peter would glorify God with, and then he said to Peter, follow me. Those were the two words he first spoke to Peter, follow me. It's a strange encounter, but you see what Jesus did? Peter's wallowing in shame and self-condemnation because three times he had denied even knowing who Jesus was, much less being a, his follower. Jesus, in his tender-heartedness, gives Peter three chances to tell him himself face-to-face, I love you. Jesus wasn't insecure. He didn't need Peter's affirmation to boost his self-esteem. Peter needed it. And not just that. Jesus calls Peter again and says, follow me. The same words that he'd used, he restores Peter's position. This was so significant. He wasn't any longer at the bottom. Jesus put him back where he he was before. It's as though Jesus in a very honorable way is saying, Peter, I'm undoing what you did. And you really need to keep reading in Acts, at least chapters 1 through 4. You can keep going from there to see how Peter's life is transformed after this. But we don't have time to go there today. Why does it matter? Why does it matter if Jesus is alive? You may say, well, that's a funny question. Well, no. What if he had died and paid the price for sin? Why does it... Did he really need to be resurrected? Did he really need to come back to life? Well, as Pastor Chris said last week, we are called to follow a person, the risen Lord Jesus. If Jesus wasn't alive today, Christianity would be a religion, like all others in the world, honoring a founder, a great teacher, a prophet, living by their teachings in memory of them versus in a relationship with a living Savior. He couldn't lead us if he wasn't alive. He couldn't promise to be with us always. He couldn't speak my name wasn't alive at our set free retreats that we do every march and november and if you haven't gone to one i encourage you to sign up for the next one we spend one whole session looking at the significance of the cross and what it means and christ's resurrection and what we gain here's a quick list i'm going to read it fast Salvation from hell, forgiveness of sin, removal of guilt, deliverance from bondages, healing of inner hurts, restoration of our relationship with God, restoration of relationship with others, Christ interceding for us, overwhelming victory over the devil, presence of God, the desire to do God's will, and the power to do God's will, peace, joy, love, hope. If Jesus overcame the grave, he is still alive and available for me to personally encounter, there's this big problem, there's no remedy for death. This is a, historically, all of history, humanity has never figured this out, a remedy for death. We've tried to predict it, we've tried to avoid it, delay it, and in modern times, we are now taking great lengths to, to, to try to control when and how, at what point in my life and what state my body will be in when it happens. But we have never found a remedy for death it's humanly impossible because the very nature of our physical body says we will one day die period you see when sin entered the world so did death romans 5:12 tells us therefore just as sin entered the world through one man adam and death through sin and in this way death came to all people because all sinned the death dilemma is really a sin dilemma humanity has been trying to cure the symptom death instead of stamping out the disease sin But apart from Christ, we don't have a solution to that. So if Christ paid the price for all sin of humanity by becoming a sacrifice on the cross, therefore the remedy for the sin problem, it stands to reason that the side effect of sin, namely death, would also be dealt with. When sin was defeated, death no longer had any power over Jesus. The natural thing was, He was alive. Because Jesus triumphed over sin and subsequently over death, he now has the power to offer us true life, eternal life. As Lee Strobel concludes in the case for Easter, maybe you've read it, he says this, if he conquered death, he can open the door to eternal life for me too. If he has divine power, he has the supernatural ability to guide and transform me as I follow him. As my creator who has my best interests at heart, he rightfully deserves deserves my allegiance and worship if there's a resurrection there's a heaven and if there's a heaven we too can be resurrected with him yes it really does matter that he is still alive and we're going to end with a passage from romans romans 8 and i'm going to read it out of the new living translation it'll be on the screen there's parts of this one i just want to cheer maybe it'll make you feel that way too does it really matter What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself Who then can condemn us? No one! For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day, we are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow. Or even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, it really does matter. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. It really does matter that Jesus is alive. We're called to follow a living Savior, the Son of God. And because he is alive... He can meet me. He can meet you.